Get on Team Shaq with WinBet. We're playing parlays, boosting odds, and laying the wildest prop bets. Don't miss another game. Download the WinBet sports betting app today. Sign up today and win $200 in free bets when you place a $10 first-time wager on a straight better parlay. Offer subject to change, terms and conditions at winbet.com. Must be 21 or older and present in the state where playthrough WinBet is available. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem, call 1-800-522-4700. Hello, 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 and welcome to the Fitz on Fantasy podcast. I'm your host, Pat Fitzmorris. You can find me on Twitter at Fitz underscore FF. I write fantasy football articles for thefootballgirl.com and CBS Sportsline, and I host this podcast, of course. But I know what you people really want from me. You want fantasy rankings. You don't care what I actually have to say. You don't care about my inner feelings. You just want those sweet, sweet rankings. But the good news is my week rankings are now up at thefootballgirl.com. And yes, good people, we are now on the cusp of week one. Actually, we're sort of in a strange purgatory between draft mode and regular season mode. Most of you are done with your fantasy drafts. A few of you last-minute Charlies might still have drafts coming up on Tuesday or Wednesday night of this week. But my guest is Matthew Friedman today. He is the editor-in-chief at Fantasy Labs, which is part of the Action Network. I'm quite fond of all my guests here at the Fits on Fantasy podcast. That's why they're my guests, after all, because they're smart, funny, personable people. But I have to say that I always have this very, I don't know, it's hard to articulate, but I guess I would describe it as a contented feeling whenever I talk to Matt and come away from a conversation with him. He's just such a fun guy to talk to. So uh, hopefully that vibe is passed along to you guys today. So Matt and I are going to cover a lot of different topics here in the run-up to week one. For those of you with drafts coming up, we're going to talk about some guys Matt likes for this season and why he likes them. For those of you who are done drafting and are now in lineup setting mode, we are going to go over a few borderline starters and their matchups for week one and whether Matt thinks you should feel good about starting them. And since Matt is part of the Action Network, I also want to talk a little action with him. We are going to talk about favorite bets for week one in the NFL season, and we are also going to talk about survivor pools, ever popular survivor pools. And we are also going to talk to Matt about his very interesting background. Uh, Let's just say he took a somewhat circuitous route to working full-time in the fantasy sports slash gambling media. So, okay, enough of my yakking. Let's get to our guest. I am joined at this time by my guest, Matthew Friedman. He is the editor-in-chief at Fantasy Labs, which is part of the Action Network. Matt also produces podcasts for Rotoviz and is a producer on the always excellent Fantasyland podcast. He's hosting the new Action Network NFL podcast. I've been mainlining those pods for the last week, and they are incredibly good, so I recommend that you check those out. Let's see what else. Earlier this summer, Matt wrote probably the best biography slash fantasy football mashup article I've ever read, How to Fail at Life and Succeed as a Fantasy Sports Writer. 
I highly recommend you look that one up and read it. And Matt finished sixth last season out of more than 100 rankers in the Fantasy Pros Rankings Accuracy Competition. Simply put, of all the people I've talked to who make a living off fantasy football and sports gaming, Matt is one of the smartest, if not the smartest. Find him on Twitter, at Matt F. The Oracle. Matt, what's going on? Uh, it's good to be here. That was a very kind introduction. Um, I have to say, I feel I'm definitely not the smartest out of anyone who's in the fantasy industry. Uh, just you know, trying to grind like everyone else. And uh, I think you finished second in last year's competition, right? I think you were. I mean, definitely top five, right? I, I did. I did. The blind squirrel. You've been you've been crushing that competition for a while. Oh, uh, yeah. More like you know, I'm I'm like a top perennial top twenty or top twenty five team. You know, I'm not Alabama, but I'm more like uh, Wisconsin or uh, Stanford or someone like that, maybe. But uh, <laughs> right, yeah. But yeah, and you certainly work with a lot of smart people at the Action Network. I mean, I've been listening to the podcasts where it's you and Sean Corner, who owns that Fantasy Pros Accuracy Competition, and uh, Chris Raybon, who is another sharp cat. When you guys talk about rankings, there's so much brain power being unleashed that I feel like I feel like the guy sitting in the chair in those old Maxell ads where he turns on the stereo system and the sound <laughs> hits him like a gust of wind. Like if my hair was long enough to blow in the wind like that, that's what be, that would be happening when I listen to your pods with Corner and Raybon. So. Oh, thanks, man. Yeah, it's a lot of fun to be doing those with them, two really smart guys. Yeah, we'll uh, we'll get back to those because I want to. You've been doing a series on the rankings that you three have posted there, and I kind of want to touch on some of the guys there. But first, now that you're with the Action Network, we have to talk action. Is there <laughs> one game on the Week One slate that's especially appealing to you from a betting perspective, be it a side or a total? Yeah, you know, uh, I look at that last Monday night game. Uh, the Rams playing at Oakland and the Rams are favored only by three. Uh, and that just seems way off to me. Uh, I know there should be some regression in terms of what they're able to do. Um, the odds are they won't win as many games as they did last year. They probably won't finish with the number one offense overall, uh, but they're still playing against an Oakland team that was just terrible last year. And I don't know if the addition of John Gruden actually makes that team better. Uh, and then from just kind of an, an action perspective, uh, you look at the the Rams and it's it's early days still, a lot of money yet to come in, but uh, they're getting 64% of the tickets on the spread, but 83% of the money that's actually coming in. So the the public, but then also the Sharps are really backing the Rams. And if you want them at this point, you have to lay a little juice with negative 120. But I still think to get them at only three points, uh, I think that's that's very uh, that's very enticing to me. So that's one line that has really stood out to me. Um, and then another one is Kansas City uh, on the road, three point dogs to the Chargers. Uh, the Chargers really don't have a home field advantage. Um, I think I think Kansas City's offense is going to be something pretty special. I know the Chargers have a very stout defense. Um, so you know I think. I think Kansas City deserves more than uh, three points, but um, I don't know. Just from a like a kind of perspective as a fan, that's going to be a really interesting game to watch because Kansas City's defense is bad. Their offense is going to need to score a lot of points, but if they can go to the Chargers uh, and beat the Chargers and take it to that defense, I think that's going to mean big things for that team for the rest of the year. 
Yeah, I'm interested in that game too, but maybe possibly more on the total, which uh, I don't have it in front of me now, but I want to say it was like 47 or 47 and a half. Yeah, 47 and a half. Yeah. I, I almost feel like you have to jump on the Chiefs overs before public and the Sharps catch up to like how bad exactly that defense is. Yeah, that defense is horrible. That offense is great. It's going to need to score a lot of points to make up for the defense. Yeah, and I'm with you on the Rams. Like, I didn't see what sort of juice you have to lay to get them at three minus three. But um, yeah, negative one twenty, which isn't still like it's not that bad. Yeah, not too exorbitant. Um, and I'm I'm kind of interested in the Falcons plus three in the Thursday night opener a little bit, especially if the Eagles are Wentzless. And, you know, we saw the Patriots come out with a little bit of a Super Bowl hangover uh, the previous year. So, yeah, I I like it. I like that. Now, Matt, I know this is primarily a fantasy football podcast and we are going to um, talk fantasy shortly. But first, I want to talk to you about survivor pools for a minute, since this is week one. And I suspect that a lot of listeners play in them and everyone's getting a fresh start here. Do you have a philosophy on how to play these things? It seems like there are two general schools of thought. There's the tightroping, tightrope walking faction that likes to kind of skirt by early in the season and save the best teams for later on. And then there's the faction that pounds the best teams and biggest spreads right away. So where do you stand? Yeah, it's a really good question. So I should I should say a couple of things. One, um, I tend to try to rely on other people for so much of what I do because there are a lot of other people. So like I would rather um, not do my own original research and just kind of like consult smart people and what they have to say, people who really study schedules uh, and then try to make an informed decision from there. Uh, and so that's just one, like I tend to rely on other people's research. But then two, um, I, you know, like, I think if you're going to play um, you want to win. I mean, that sounds like a stupid thing to say, but like, I think you want to, you want to have the strategy that over the course of the season maximizes your chances of winning, uh, for the entire season, not just going week to week. Uh, and granted so much changes throughout the course of the season that I think it's, it's, it sometimes can be dangerous to try to have too big of a season long perspective, but I don't think you definitely can go week to week on this. Otherwise, you find yourself in week five and you're like, you know what? I don't like any of my options. Um, so I definitely try to take more of a macro approach. And also, I try to take an approach that instead of uh, necessarily focusing on the good teams, like, oh, this is the week I want to play uh, the Patriots or the Steelers or the Rams, something like that. I try to focus on the teams that suck. And like, those are the teams that like, I always want to try to target. So it's not as if like I had the foresight last year to be like, oh, um, these Browns are definitely going 0-16. And, and I basically just want to stream against them the whole season. Um, but you did know that they were a bad team and that at best they were probably 4-12. and So you knew that was a team that you wanted to be targeting. Uh, and obviously you can't play uh, AFC North teams against them twice, but you can play a whole bunch of other teams against them once during the season. So that really kind of is my strategy to, to try to isolate uh, the two to four teams that I think are really bad and try to find the matchup that works against them both for that week and then also within the greater context of the season. Yeah, that's a good, I would say that's good 
overall strategy. I'm uh, I'm still honing my strategy. I for all the talk I had heard of people in these leagues, I had never gotten into one until last year, uh-huh. and then I just kind of fell ass backwards into a deep finish after the Kansas City upset of the Patriots in Week One. That that wiped out about half the field, and uh, yeah, what was the other big one? I think a lot of people had the Jaguars losing to Pittsburgh, yeah, in Pittsburgh last year, and yeah. uh, you know that was I, I was not playing against the Jacksonville defense at any point last year, so just kind of surviving those two. I will say I think the one thing that's good about pounding the favorites early and not screwing around and trying to get cute and kind of save save a little bit for later on is that like, if you can just get to the final, if it's a big enough pool, the final half dozen or so, yeah, you know, you can get to the point where you can very easily hedge out bets, sports bets going against whatever team you're betting on to further your cause in the survivor pool, bet against them with some, you know, a big money line play on some super underdog that week. So anyway, but there's some people who just like to go for it and, you know, aren't going to bother to, hedge it and, and make those side bets. All right, Matt, let's get back to fantasy football. Earlier, I referenced those great rankings podcasts you did with Sean Corner and Chris Raybon. There were a few players that you were higher on than your colleagues. And uh, let's go through some of those players. You don't have to give a dissertation on any of these guys, but maybe just a few words on each as far as what you find appealing. Let's start with Jimmy G. I, I think you were the only one to have him in your top 10. Is that right? Uh, Raybon, so I have him at seven, Raybon has him at eight, Corner has him at 14. So there's a pretty big difference between where Raybon and I have him and where Corner has him. Um, but what I, I like about Garoppolo is that, um, in addition to, you know, showing well in his limited action, uh, in New England and getting the opportunity to learn there, uh, you know, he obviously was fantastic right away, right out of the gate in Shanahan's offense, which, uh, you know, other quarterbacks have said like Matt Ryan uh, has said uh, is one that is harder to learn. And it took Ryan a year really to master it. Uh, And granted, it was probably a a truncated playbook for Garoppolo when he came in with five weeks left to play in the season. Uh, But he did well with what was thrown at him uh, with a, a group of surrounding players that really was not that good. Uh, and so his surrounding talent is better this year. He's had an offseason uh, to learn the playbook. Uh, the defense, I think, should be improved a little bit. So just like that entire team, I think, will be better, which I, uh, bolsters, to me, uh, Garoppolo's chances. So, um, you know, like after the first like six or so players, um, I don't know. I think they're, it's not that it falls off, but Garoppolo is kind of the guy that I think might have the most upside. Like I could see him finishing as kind of like a 2016 Matt Ryan type of, of player this year. Yeah, it's funny. I, I think the uh, difference of opinion on him within your own staff sort of reflects where it is within the industry overall. Like I've seen a lot of people yeah. sort of cast doubt that he is going to be uh, an elite fantasy talent this year and a lot of people are totally on board. So interesting how polarizing he is. Um, What about Mark Ingram? I think you maybe had him at running back 20. Yeah. Despite the suspension. Yeah. So I think I had him around 20 corner, I believe was right around there. Uh, looking at the rankings now, Corner has him at 21. Raybon has him at 34. So Raybon is just applying a a very strict um, discount, basically because of the four game suspension, uh, and, and also for a couple of things. One, uh, he's very high on Kamara. 
Um, and he also thinks that uh, there might be some sort of like post PED drop off with Ingram, which is an interesting theory. But for me, it's basically that uh, I know I'm going to miss four games with Ingram, but when he comes back, I think he's basically going to be a high end running back too. Uh, And so for me, uh, that is worth drafting uh, around the number RB20, because I think that for the first four weeks, I can probably string together enough production from other running backs to make up for what I'm not getting with Ingram during that month. And then once he comes back, I think I have someone who's a locked-in producer. That makes sense to me, too. And I don't think you have to draft him at RB20 sure, in, in sure. a lot of drafts. Yeah. Like he's going more in the 25 to 26 range. So yeah. What about Sony Michelle? So he's a guy that uh, I'm actually a little bit lower on than the others. Corner has him 35th. Raybon has him 38. I have him 40. Um, and a lot of that is just because, you know, there's always this rotation um, in the backfield with the Patriots. And uh, I, I don't know. This is probably like a bias, but I don't think Michelle deserves to be drafted with a first round pick. Like I know that he was. But I don't think he deserved to be, and I don't know if his production ultimately is going to match up with his draft status. So just given that, and then given the you know the it was a small uh, you know preseason scope that he had, he should probably be fine. But you know that set him back a little bit in training camp. Just given those things, uh, I'm not going to be super bullish on him. Yeah, I'm with you. That was sort of a strange um, dynamic at work with the smart team drafting him with sort of a, a, you know, not very smart play, it would seem. So um, it was disappointing. I was hoping that was going to be Lamar Jackson in the draft. That would have been interesting. That would have been really interesting to see what the Patriots would have done with him. Um, How about Larry Fitzgerald? You seem uh, not concerned about the age. No, no, I, I love him. Uh, I'm basically going to be uh, a Fitz truther until he decided he decides to retire. And like he could have retired like two or three years ago and it would have been fine. But uh, he's just continued to crank out these seasons that aren't like impressive, um, but they're consistent enough. He's not a touchdown producer at this point. You know, he's going to be anywhere from like four to seven touchdowns per year. Um, but you can basically bank on the targets that he's going to get. Uh, and he's getting high percentage targets because he's running so many of his routes now from the slot. And he's just like so much of a, a technician at this point that like even though he's slowed down, he is still so precise that Fitzgerald going against your average slot corner is just a total mismatch. And then more importantly, there's just really no one else established on the team to steal targets from him except, you know, David Johnson. But like how many targets realistically can David Johnson get per year? Like even if he gets like 120, that still leaves a lot for Fitzgerald. So for me, it's basically just kind of like locked in usage of what he's done over the past three seasons. I know it's a new offense, new quarterback, but he's basically still the same guy. And I think he's going to be used in a similar way. I agree. Even with the change in system, it's it's hard to see him not finishing in the top 10 you know, if not the top five in targets this year. Uh, what about a, a guy who stylistically is sort of a polar opposite receiver? Uh, Robbie Anderson. Yeah, uh, I'm normally high on him. I, w- I will just admit that. Um, I have him ranked 22nd. Uh, corner is 31. Raybon is 39. So like I am, I'm the outlier here, um, but I don't care. Like I'm, I'm willing to say that like this is my guy. Um, he was productive as an undrafted rookie 
in his first year, uh, productive last year. Uh, and especially when you look at the, the splits that he has with different quarterbacks, when he's been with a competent quarterback, so basically someone who's not Bryce Petty, right? Like his production with Bryce Petty last year was bad. But when he had Josh McCown throwing him the ball, he was a pretty good producer. He was like a high end wide receiver two type of producer. Um, he's a, you know, a tall guy who's a good contested catch receiver and he's got good deep speed. I, you know, like, I don't think he's, um, he's an elite talent, but he's like, I think he's much better than people think. Uh, and in college at Temple, he had one fantastic season. I think it was his first season playing receiver where, you know, he was basically like the guy on his offense. Um, people, I think just don't understand how, how much of the, um, the kind of number one wide receiver profile he has except for his draft pedigree. But that's really the only thing. Yeah, I think the people who do appreciate him are the people who picked him up on waivers last year. Because he like really did carry fantasy teams for a stretch of like a month or more. Yeah. What about Cortland Sutton? You seem to think he might be able to have an impact right away. Yeah, I'm. Uh, I, again, I'm high on him. Uh, I had him 49, um, or I have him 49, I should say. Uh, Raybon has him now 55, but at one point Raybon had him like number 80, and uh, Corner had his, has him at 73, right? So Raybon has moved on him. Corner hasn't done it yet. For me, a lot of it has to do uh, well, with a couple of things. One, his draft pedigree. Two, his college production. Uh, very productive uh, for three years at SMU. Um, and then three, his physical profile. Um, I think he's like a young Alshon Jeffrey-esque type of talent in his ability to make contested catches uh, and then his size and speed profile. Uh, and then the big thing, the fourth thing, is that he's on a team with two wide receivers who are aging. I think Sanders uh, is still probably the, the preferable guy to Demarius Thomas, but it's close. Um, I think Sanders can probably still be productive in the slot. Uh, Demarius looks like he's slowing down and he's probably still going to get his target volume. But I just think at some point in the season, it could kind of become the Cortland Sutton show where it's like this third wide receiver comes out of nowhere and he's getting more of the red zone looks than Demarius Thomas is. And they eventually start giving him some of those deep passes. Uh, I, I think he's just he's so talented that uh, he has such a wide range of outcomes where he could do nothing his rookie year. Um, but he could be, I think, like a high end, you know, for like, let's say the second half of the season, he could be like a high end wide receiver, too. Like, I think he has that kind of potential. So I want to get exposure to him where I can. And so I, I don't think I would actually draft him as the wide receiver 49 off the board. But my ranking is meant to indicate that he provides a lot of value where you probably will be able to draft him. Yeah, he. I think it took me a long time to come around to the idea that he was going to factor into this. It's just been the the Demarius and Sanders show for so long. But you know, I don't think. I think what the Broncos did in the draft maybe speaks to the fact that they did not want that to be the case forevermore. That these two guys just dominate this huge percentage of team targets. So they, you know, went out and got not only Sutton but Deshaun Hamilton. Yeah, who's a pretty yeah. decent prospect. So. Um, yeah, and the, the reports have just been glowing about what Sutton has done in camp. So it is going to be interesting to see if he can, uh, you know, force his way into the target picture there right away. 
I wanted to take a minute to tell you guys about a new type of football pool you can run this season. The team at the Score X has created an innovative way to compete with friends or coworkers while watching NFL games. You buy and sell teams like stocks, and the person with the highest balance at the end of the season wins. Team prices are based on team performance, so it's like an against-the-spread pick'em brought into the future. There are no deadlines to submit picks, and you can trade as little or as often as you like. Trade preseason, in-game, or postseason. For the launch, they are running a contest with a $3,000 grand prize going to the winner. If you create a custom league with at least 10 of your friends or coworkers, they bump up the grand prize to $5,000 for you. It's a simple, fun way to invest in the NFL. Just download from thescorex.com, and it's available for iOS or Android. Enter the promo code PAT, P-A-T, and you will be eligible for a free $100 Amazon gift card awarded to the top preseason trader. A link to the apps will also be in the show notes for this week's episode of the podcast. All right, Matt, I have to ask you about a guy who I accidentally auto-drafted last night in a live draft at a bar where I wasn't paying attention. And I consoled myself by thinking, okay, Friedman's really high on this guy. So if he's right, then I'll be okay. Evan Engram. Uh, yeah, I'm probably too high on him. I'll just say that. Like, I have him ranked number four. Uh, Corner and Raybon have him ranked seven. Uh, so I'm I'm probably wrong. The thing with Ingram is that um, – so I know if you're looking at, like, the team picture, it's like where are these targets going to come from because Beckham is returning – uh, Saquon Barkley is a good receiving back. He's going to get some usage. Uh, Sterling Shepard is someone who should probably you know, progress as he enters his third season. So it's like, where are these targets going to come from? But they don't have a established wide receiver three. I think Ingram is basically going to function in that role. It wouldn't surprise me if he actually overtakes Sterling Shepard. Uh, and then from a kind of just player-based perspective, Ingram had one of the best rookie tight end seasons of the last decade. Uh, He's a first rounder. He's a classic move tight end uh, based on what he did. I mean, guys normally get better. Tight ends normally get better, especially the highly drafted guys. They get better in their second season. And so based on what he did last year, and I know a lot of it was fueled by uh, volume opportunity that might not be there, but just based on what he did, uh, I think he has a lot of upside. And so I would rather take the gamble if I'm going to be drafting after the top three, uh, but I'm going to be drafting in that middle range. I would rather take the gamble on him uh, because I think he has top three upside. I'd rather take the gamble on him as opposed to one of the older guys like Olsen or Walker or Jimmy Graham. Yeah, it's it does seem like a sensible bet on the talent over the situation. And sometimes the situation just sort of works itself out to allow the talent to thrive, which we saw with Angram last year. And speaking of a similar situation, and I don't think you're necessarily that much of an outlier with your ranking of this guy, but I have heard you talk about him on other podcasts and I just enjoyed it so much because I feel the same way that I wanted to hear you talk about him again. David Njoku. Oh man, uh, I, like I'm trying not to be too optimistic on this guy. You've got a crush. <laughs> yeah, he has so much talent, and you know he was so young when he was drafted. Um, you know, 20 years old when he was drafted. The the cohort of guys to play as 21 year old tight ends as rookies in the league. That's a really small group, and it is super elite. You know, so you're talking about. Uh, Guys basically like Gronk and Aaron Hernandez, right? But then also going back, uh, Jason Witten 
as one of these guys, Tony Gonzalez as one of these guys. Like it is a very elite group. Um, and, and so Njoku is in that cohort and he dominated in college. Like he was a run after the catch superstar. Um, and then, so you have a guy who has that type of physical ability. Uh, and then last year he actually led the Browns in receiving touchdowns. And you might be like, well, that doesn't mean much considering they had only, was it like 14 or 15 passing touchdowns? So it's like, yeah, that's not that much, but like as a rookie tight end, he still had four of them. Like that's pretty good. Like it's it's very rare for a tight end in general to lead his team in receiving touchdowns, much less a rookie to do it. Right. So like he is just poised. Uh, and then at this point now in the preseason, they were giving him the usage. Like last year, he led the team in touchdowns despite having to split snaps with Seth DeValve, who I think is actually still like an intriguing talent, but like he's not David Unjoku. Uh, and just based on preseason this year, Unjoku is now the guy. Like th- they are using him. And in that first preseason game, oh man, it looked good. Right, he had that that long touchdown where he basically just outran coverage by a linebacker. He has the the type of physical tools to do that, and then he had another touchdown where he basically just skied above two defenders. Right, he has the ability to do that too to make contested catches. So I think he has so much of what you want. And then you look at uh, the the quarterbacks who are going to be throwing to him. I think Tyrod enters the season as the starter. Uh, he's been a, a tight end focused quarterback, right? Charles Clay for three years uh, in Buffalo was basically his primary receiver. Uh, and then you have Baker Mayfield, uh, who I think is a talented guy. And last year made Mark Andrews basically the top tight end in college football. Um, so I think no matter how you look at this, kind of like from a, a draft perspective of Njoku having a lot of pedigree from him being a, a just a physical freak, uh, you know, opportunities on that offense and then the quarterbacks throwing him the ball. I think there's just so much potential here. And then you can get him normally outside of the top 10 tight ends. But I think he has like top five, top three capability. Uh, all of those 21-year-old guys – uh, to play as rookies who were highly drafted, all of them, except for Eric Ebron, all of them have had uh, within their careers at least one top five fantasy finish. You know, like it, at some point, it is likely to happen for Njoku. And like that right. could be. And I want to be on board when it happens. And I'm sure you do too. And every, every time I start to worry about like the target competition that he, you know, might get from. Jarvis Landry and Duke Johnson and Josh Gordon, if he's there for most of the season, I just go and check the website of your longtime podcast nemesis, Matt Kelly, the player profile, playerprofiler.com and look at Njoku's measurables and I get pumped up immediately again. So oh, and target target competition. I'm glad you mentioned that because that's like um, that's something that is important, but like it is a very fluid thing. Um, like so much changes throughout the course of the season. And uh, I'm a pretty strong believer that like over the long run, uh, talent ultimately beats opportunity or, or talent determines opportunity. Like somehow, uh, you know, guys get injured. Uh, the focus of an offense will shift, whatever it is. But normally uh, a guy who is talented will ultimately find targets. Um, you know, like, I mean, 
you know, Jeff Janis excluded, <laughs> you know, but, but uh, you know, normally if a guy has the ability at some point, the ball will start to find him. That's just, that's kind of my perspective. It, and it doesn't always work out like on a season, like on a seasonal basis, but over a career, stuff like that tends to work out. At least for the pass catchers, right? The receivers and yeah. the tight ends, maybe less so for the running backs. Yeah. Agreed there. Uh, once again, I am joined on this podcast by my guest, Matt Freeman, Friedman, excuse me. He is the editor in chief at fantasy labs, which is part of the action network. Find him on Twitter at Matt F the Oracle, Matt recently, you and some of your action network colleagues flew to Las Vegas for the gambling Olympics. Basically you guys (laughs) bet on a lot of different things, including some pretty stupid shit, but of course the stupid shit was the most interesting to everyone who was following this extravaganza you can say a few words about the overall event if you'd like, but really, I just want to know two things. The first is, how did you sell this trip to your wife? And the second, <laughs> what in your estimation was the most interesting or entertaining event? Yeah. So I should say that um, I think I was fortunate in a way in that uh, I wasn't actively participating. Um, I wasn't one of like the the chosen 12 uh, who who uh, got to participate? Uh, I was covering it for the the Action Network. You were photographed wearing a referee shirt, I believe, at one point. So yes, that yes, sort of explained exactly. your role. Yeah. So it wasn't even so much how was I able to sell my wife on this. It was how was I able to sell the Action Network on this <laughs> that they needed to to pay for me to go out there and to cover this for the site. Um, but it's it, it happened. Um, you know, I, mean, I think my wife was just like, are you going to be able to survive being out in Vegas for almost a week? Uh, and so I'm, I'm happy to say I did survive. Uh, it was an awesome event. There was the, the bro Athlon, uh, which was organized by Pete Manzanelli, um, you know, basketball plus alcohol, uh, what could go wrong? Um, that was a lot of fun. Um, there was the, the challenge, which I don't know I, if I really can talk about it all that much, but where Jonathan Bales was trying to accomplish a number of things uh, within a 24-hour period, including eating a lot of donuts, uh, running six miles uh, within a set period of time, 66 minutes. Um, there were some other things involved in there. <laughs> some other um, biological uh, performances. Yes, drinking a lot of beer and and one other thing. So uh, anyway, there all of that was was highly entertaining, um, and trying to write about that without uh, covering that in full detail was also its own little uh, challenge and uh, fun experiment. Um, but yeah, so it was it was a blast. Um, and the the formal event, the main event, um, where there were twelve different uh, components of the gambling Olympics, uh, you know, not board games, but, you know, uh, Yahtzee, uh, like Yahtzee all the way to beer pong. Right. So it was basically just, uh, you know, degenerate fest for two days, uh, with 12 different guys out there. And then, you know, some other guys there who were covering it. Um, so it was a lot of fun. There was literally a writer from the New York times there covering it. Uh, and that that story at some point is going to come out. Uh, and when it does, I, I have no idea what he's going to say. It could be terrifying. I think it will be good, but it could be like, wow, this is the end of civilization. <laughs> you know? I had so, no idea uh, that could be. That's like a Hunter S. Thompson assignment from the 1970s. It sounds like. Yeah. 
Yeah. So uh, there was a, a sort of impromptu uh, beer chugging contest. Um, <laughs> that was that was one of the highlights of the the main event. But yeah, just all around uh, a, a good uh, week of wholesome degenerate fun. Uh, we went to and this and this whole event was kind of organized by the three donkeys of Jonathan Bales, Peter Jennings, and Adam Levitan. And uh, at one point, we did go to the the Las Vegas Aces game, uh, WNBA game, and that was a blast. Um, like I've, I'm really starting to get into WNBA because it falls within this really good time of the sports calendar uh, where, you know, not much else is happening. There's some golf, there's some baseball, but then you just have this action. And I think the WNBA is, is going to blow up. Like I think within 20 years, it's just going to be this fantastic game. You have a lot of great athletes there. You've had this culture that's been able to develop um, where, you know, you know, maybe like 20, 30 years ago, you didn't have a, a group of women who thought, oh, one day I can be a professional athlete playing this game I love. But now you have, you know, a cohort of young women who are growing up who can think of that realistically as a possible career. Uh, and so they can train for it differently. So it's just, it's a whole new culture. Uh, and I think that game is going to be fantastic, but, uh, that game in particular, that was just so much fun. Like that, the, the aces game, that might've been the highlight of the week because one, we bet on it. So like we were just so into it and we were there. And then two, like, um, I, I think we legitimately, and this is like so stupid for anyone to say, but as fans, I think we legitimately affected the outcome of that game just because like, we, you know, like we were so loud and the audience got so loud kind of like around us. They were down by 12 at one point and they ended up, I think, winning by maybe like six. Like it was like this awesome comeback victory in the fourth quarter. So like, honestly, the Aces game, that might have been the best part of the whole trip. Oh, that's cool, man. And this podcast is affiliated with the football girl. So, uh, you know, I should mention like earlier in my career, I very early in my career, I covered some high school basketball and it's like the girls who are really good at it can play like could have kicked my ass you know like the the ones who have good handles and you know can jump a little and like women's basketball is underrated and like the people on twitter who bash it and say women's basketball is just worthless or idiots because you know i enjoy watching women's basketball i hope you're right about the league blowing up because that would be extremely cool uh so matt let's talk about how you got to the point of going out and taking part in something (laughs) as debauched as the gambling Olympics. Um, And this gets back to the article you wrote, how to fail at life and succeed as a fantasy sports writer. It would take a lot of time to go through a blow by blow of the entire piece. So uh, I'd highly recommend that listeners search for it and read it for themselves. Let me ask you about a few elements of it. So you were going to write a biography on Alice in Chains frontman Lane Staley. How far did that actually get? So, uh, I mean, it depends on your definition of far, like I got super far in the research, like the research is basically done. Uh, and then in the writing, um, I'd say it's probably about 25% done, maybe 30% done. Um, and there just came a day. I I know it sounds so weird, but like this day where I was like, Oh, I'm going to take a break. Like I was writing every day. And one day I just decided I'm going to take a break today. Just kind of clear my head. And I, I haven't, that was like eight years ago. Like I haven't written any of it since then. Do you think you could ever go back to it? Maybe, but it would just, it would be a totally different book. Uh, and literally like some of the people I interviewed for that book are dead now. 
you know, like it's just, you know, life happens. Uh, and so it's just like, I was at a different point in my life. Um, a lot of the, the people who were in that book, they were even at a different point in their life when they interviewed with me, uh, talking about even like yet another different point in their lives when they were like 20 years old, you know? So it's just, if I were to do it, if I were to return to it, it would be very different. Um, but you know, it's weird. It's a story. It's a story that I think deserves to be told because he, he was such a great guy and he had an interesting life, but he was also very private. Um, and in the end, like, I feel like I got to know him even though I didn't know him, but I I got to know things about him that other people didn't know. Like you, um, this might sound weird, but like there were people who had bits of different stories but they never had the same, they never knew the full story. And I got to know the full story about certain things because I had conversations with all of those different people. And like some of them had never had conversations with each other to put together the whole story. But it's like, I, I have that. Um, but I know him now through all of those conversations with other people who knew him. I, I know him well enough now to know that he wouldn't want that story out there. You know, so it's like it's this kind of weird thing where um, it's a story that deserves to be told, but I don't know if it ever will be or should be. Another element of that article, uh, you kind of run through your educational background. You were uh, an undergrad at TCU and got a BS in biology and chemistry and a BA in English. Is that right? Um, I wasn't very good at deciding what I wanted to do with my life, which is like a, a theme that that's how you end up being a fantasy sports writer. Exactly. So then, but you, after that, you went to a PhD program in English at Boston college and you did wind up getting a master's degree eventually. Correct. Yeah. So, um, I got to the dissertation stage and then I was like, wait a minute, I don't want to write this thing. Uh, I don't want to be a professor. Like, you know, I've researched for this, but I, that's a, it's a trend doing the research for something and then deciding not to write it. Uh, so then I just terminated with the masters. And then you also, at one point were studying for the LSAT. So you, you mentioned the professor thing, but at, was there a time when you saw yourself becoming a university professor or an attorney? Yeah. I mean, when I was an undergrad, I was like, Oh, and those were the two things actually. It's like, Oh, I could, I could be a professor. I could be a lawyer. Um, and so, yeah, like I went to grad school thinking that I might be a professor. The thing is, and this is, um, I don't know, it sort of gets to like almost like a skin in the game type of thing. Like I, I got a scholarship to do, uh, the PhD program at Boston college. Like they were paying me to do it. So like my perspective was like, well, that's cool. Like if I can, uh, read a whole bunch of books <laughs> that I want to read and someone can pay me to do that. Like, yeah, I'm, I'm going to do that. Like I will postpone adulthood and I will just do that. Um, and so that was kind of like my perspective on it. It was a pretty young, naive perspective. And then when it came to studying for the LSAT, like, I don't know if I ever actually wanted to be a lawyer, but I like the, I like learning and I like thinking. Uh, and so for me, like the LSAT was just like this prolonged, uh, study of a whole bunch of different puzzles. And I loved actually studying for the LSAT. Like I liked taking all of the different practice tests and I did well on them. And I, I took the LSAT and you know, I did well enough on it to be like, oh, you know what? I could, I could get into like a legit 
law school. Uh, and then, <laughs> then it was like, well, do I actually want to be a lawyer? And then at that point, like I was married. And so it's not just me. Like I have to start thinking of things in like consultation with my partner. Uh, and so, you know, she, uh, at that point was applying, uh, for positions to teach English, uh, at universities because unlike me, she actually finished her PhD. So it was just <laughs> like, well, like, you know, I don't know if I, if I want to do law school or really can do law school at this point, because like, you know, I have to think about where she might get a job and then is there a law school in that area? And then how long are we going to stay there? So basically like I, the odds are I was never going to apply to law school anyway. Uh, but then I, I really wasn't going to apply to law school just because of, of where I was in life at that point. So now you're still at a point where you get to put puzzles together for a living, but uh, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. The, the fact that you wrote this article about everything suggests that you've spent time reflecting on this journey. I mean, are you feeling pretty good about where you are now? Yeah, it's so weird. Like, um, I think if you, if you told my life to people who knew me in college, uh, I think they would either be like, Oh, he, he does stuff with sports. That's awesome. Or they, they would be like, wow, he really turned into a loser. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, both of those responses are probably accurate. Um, But, you know, like it's this weird situation where um, I actually really like my life. And I don't think it's it's a life that I would have imagined for myself like 10 years ago. But I actually like I like my job Uh, every day. I am excited about what I'm doing. And I think that's like a real gift. Like, I think very few people in life actually are excited about what they do on a day-to-day basis, but I'm actually pretty excited about it. Even when it's like, oh, I have to edit like 10 different articles and, you know, like that's not the funnest thing in the world. Uh, I still have fun because I'm still reading about sports and thinking about sports and like, you know, what else would I actually rather be doing for a living? Yeah, that's good. We are better off for having you uh, made that decision, have made that decision and taken that fork in the road. So we're we're glad you're here, Matt. Uh, yeah, not so as glad as I am. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so let's put some of that hard-won wisdom to use for fantasy owners. Uh, we'll wrap up with a bit more fantasy football talk with the caveat that okay, we don't have full context here. We don't know what choices fantasy owners are going to be making individual fantasy owners, but let's go over some guys who might be borderline starts for week one. All right. You don't, you don't have to give me a straight thumbs up or thumbs down on these guys, but maybe just a sense of whether you're feeling positively or negatively toward these guys for week one. Okay. And uh, I'll, I'll provide opponent also, since we're now in the matchup phase of fantasy football, it's not just the pre-draft prep. It's actually worrying about matchups every week. Andrew Luck versus the Bengals this week. Yeah, uh, love it. <laughs> not not I mean, worried about I, the I health. Like, like you don't need a, a game to see that he's still got the fastball. No, I think it's there. Um, I think he's he's basically Andrew Luck. Like he might be a slightly diminished Andrew Luck, but you know he's out there. He's going to be making throws. He has Ty Hilton. He has two pretty good tight ends. Yeah, I'm on board. The and the the Bengals defense doesn't really scare me that much. Yeah, I, so I was kind of with you until I was talking to uh, Andy Barons and Michael Beller the other night, and they were saying that you know both of these guys cover fantasy baseball as well as fantasy football. Yeah. And they were saying that if a pitcher had gone through what Luck had gone through, 
Like it's not, it wouldn't be a question of whether his fastball would have the same velocity. It would just be a question of how much he lost, whether he lost, you know, five miles or 10 miles off his fastball. So yeah. like, I want to feel total confidence in him, but that was sort of an interesting perspective. Like, you know, is he going to be one of these guys who, uh, and this is an old reference that probably a lot of my listeners are not going to get, but like Frank Tanana, who used to throw a hundred miles an hour and then like reworked himself as a junk baller and had a long career. I, I mean, yeah. So for me, it gets to the question of like, how, how important is arm strength for a quarterback anyway? And I think it's kind of an overvalued commodity. Not that it's unimportant, but that like there are quarterbacks who if they're smart enough and they throw with enough anticipation and they read the defense as well, um, their lack of arm strength uh, doesn't impact them the way that it would for another quarterback who just doesn't have the overall skill set that they have. So for me, I like I'm just assuming that he doesn't have the arm he once did. Uh, and I'm still okay with that because he still has his brain. Yeah, that's a good point about the velocity. I mean, we saw Deshaun Watson at the combine last year put up a number on the radar gun that would have drawn a yawn from a state trooper if uh, that football had been <laughs> going past him, and he seemed to do okay without you know a, a Pat Mahomes caliber fastball. So. How about uh, you touched on this game earlier and you like the Rams. So what about Jared Goff at the Raiders? Uh, Yeah, very much on board. Uh, Jared Goff in the second half of the season after the bye week um, was even better than he had been in the first half of the season. Uh, You know, multiple games of 300 yards and multiple touchdowns. Uh, The Raiders defense is not good. Um, And it's kind of been that way for a uh, a while. And they uh, seemingly might be playing without Khalil Mack. Um, and so that defense will just be even worse. So, yeah, I'm all on board, Goff, uh, against the Raiders for week one. All right, based on how you expect the, the game script to go in that one, I might know the answer to this already, but Marshawn Lynch at the Rams. Yeah, not quite as interested in that. Um, you know, I, I think Lynch will probably get decent volume um, across the season, but yeah, it might be a situation where game, uh, game script just goes against him. Uh, the Rams run defense wasn't all that great last year, but I think it probably will be a little bit better this year. Um, just because of some of the changes that they've made on defense. All right. Here's one I think is going to be a very interesting flex type call for a lot of people in week one, Rex Burkhead at the Texans. Yeah. Uh, I'm definitely interested because I think he's I think he's going to be the big body guy who gets goal line touches. Um, So that on his own or that on its own makes him, I think, viable. Uh, But then he's also, you know, of the three guys who really have the potential to get work, I think he's the most well-rounded. He can be a pass catcher, but he can be an early down thumper. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm definitely on board. Uh, the Texans defense, it, I mean, obviously struggled last year with all of the injuries that they had. Um, but I still think that their run defense, even with JJ Watt back, uh, Whitney Merciless back, uh, I think their run defense will still probably be a little suspect. How about Chris Carson at the Broncos? Uh, I'm staying away. I think, um, I'm just not, I mean, I know he's had a good preseason, um, I know that he flashed in limited action last year, um, but I think the Broncos defense will be better. They are playing in Denver. 
Um, I think even the the Broncos offense will be better, which puts the defense in better positions than they were in last year. And one of the big things for me is just uh, I I want to see more of that Seattle offense. They have a new offensive coordinator who I don't really trust. I know that Brian Schottenheimer historically has been a guy who's really wanted to run the ball. So that could feed into Chris Carson, but there is Rashad Penny there. So I don't even know how much of the workload uh, Carson is going to get. And I don't even know if that offense is going to be good enough to sustain the workload that they want to give a, a running back in the first place. So it, for me, I, I'm just staying away. In a game we talked about earlier with that interesting matchup between the Chiefs offense and the Chargers defense, how do you feel about Sammy Watkins? Uh, I'm, I'm, he's a boomer bust guy to me. So I'm probably going to be staying away. Like I'm hoping that he's not uh, someone that I need to put into my lineup in week one. Um, But he is someone I want to monitor and see how he does and how specifically how they use him, how they target him uh, against presumably someone who's going to be a good cornerback covering him. Yeah, that's interesting. He's one of those guys you draft and you're kind of happy about it, but then you get him and you're like, what now? You're not quite sure how to exactly. when to deploy him. Yeah, like what what now means for the beginning of the season season. I hope I don't have to start him, and I can see that the team actually uses him, and then I feel safer using him, starting him from that point forward. Right. How about Marquise Goodwin at the Vikings? I don't know. I I know that there's hype about him being the number one receiver. I just don't know if that's actually something that's going to happen. And I think even if he is the number one receiver, it's not going to be like he's the dominant receiver. I think Garoppolo is still going to spread the ball around a lot uh, amongst all the different pass catchers that he has. Uh, And then Goodwin going against a very good secondary in Minnesota kind of scares me. Uh, And so my, my thinking is that the... The 49ers might be able to win that game without targeting Goodwin uh, or or without targeting him heavily. Um, I just don't see them necessarily going out of their way to throw to a guy who's kind of small and still kind of unproven, uh, challenging the the defense where it is the strongest. So I I don't know. For me, I'm just staying away. I had to find one tight end matchup to ask you about to close on. And I was going to ask you about Austin Safarian Jenkins against the Giants, but everyone knows you play your tight ends against the Giants. So in- that, that would have been an easy answer. <laughs> <laughs> so instead I'll, I'll make it a little bit tougher on you. OJ Howard at the Saints. Uh, yeah, I don't know, man. Uh, I'm probably staying away just from Howard in general. Like I don't have Howard on any of my teams because I never wanted to have to think about starting OJ Howard. So, so for me, this is almost like an automatic no. Um, but I mean, a big part of it is just that, um, I, I don't really know how to think about this split with Cam and Brait. Like Brait, I think is still the superior player or, I mean, last we saw, he was the guy who was still getting the usage and Howard, I think is going to steal a lot of the usage, but I don't think he's going to overtake Brait entirely to make, uh, to make him safe enough for me to want to play at all, like in any week. Yeah, I totally know what you mean about that. I, and I've been ducking him in drafts for the same reason. Like, I like the talent. I mean, he's he's sort of a almost in Njoku type, maybe a little less physically imposing, but, um, you know, great college prospect. But yeah, like, how do you use him? I finally got him in that draft last night where I auto-drafted Evan Ingram. 
but that's like a weird league where we have a lot of flex positions. So I basically figured like, okay, I'm going to be starting Ingram every week, but you know, maybe there might be a situation in which Howard is like flex worthy at some point during the season. Matt, I want to thank you for joining me this week. I don't think you and I have talked to each other on a podcast since you had me on as a guest on Rotoviz, uh, a Rotoviz pod three or four years ago, and we did the no shit, shit, no segment. So <laughs> it's great to catch up again, and uh, I hope we can do it again soon. Before I let you go, can you give listeners your Twitter handle once more and tell them where they can hear you and read you during the season? Yeah, uh, Matt F. The Oracle on Twitter. Uh, during the season, I will be doing the positional breakdowns at Fantasy Labs, also uh, contributing some content to staff written pieces at the Action Network. And uh, I will be doing podcasts each week um, with Sean Corner and Peter Jennings on Tuesday night. That will come out on Wednesday morning. And then uh, Thursday night, Friday morning, also be, uh, I'll be doing a podcast with Chris Rabon uh, in which we kind of look at the different games in the slate and uh, specifically break down a couple of the games that really have our eyes. Excellent, Matt. I look forward to reading and listening. Thanks again and hope to talk to you again soon. Awesome. Have a good one. Folks, that is going to do it for this episode. I want to once again thank my guest, Matthew Friedman. Find him on Twitter at Matt F. The Oracle. He is the editor-in-chief of Roto Labs, part of the Action Network. And of course, a big thank you to my producer, Mr. Calm Kelly. He is a an executive producer at Rotoviz Radio, the co-host of the fantastic Rotoviz Overtime Podcast, along along with Sean Siegel. Follow Calm on Twitter at Overtime Ireland. And thank you to my colleague at the Football Girl, Melissa Jacobs, at the Football Girl on Twitter. Without Melissa, this podcast would not be possible. Once again, please, if you can, see it in your hearts to rate and review this podcast. I would appreciate it bigly. It does a lot of good for us. And uh, thank you, dear listener. We are now on to week one. I hope you really enjoy the return of NFL football. We will be back next week, and we will talk about actual game results and look ahead to week two. Until then, enjoy your football and be good to each other. Shohei Otani hits, pitches, and trades crypto. He does it all on the platform that trades it all. FTX, the official crypto exchange of MLB. But you don't have to be a pro to trade like one. Just download the FTX app and you could be trading crypto, NFTs, and more in minutes. FTX, Shohei's in, are you?